1: Hello everybody and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast Welcome back to season four, this is our first episode, very exciting My name's Erica Worth, and I'm the host of this podcast here For those of you that are new, for the first two years of this podcast, I focused on topics related to the endangered southern resident killer whales who have primarily lived in the Salish Sea. They are salmon eaters, um, and they're currently endangered as a result of starvation, vessel noise, and water toxins. So if you guys want to learn more about them, I totally recommend going to our first Several episodes, well, actually more than several, majority of the episodes are Southern Resident related. Um, In season three, we started to dive into other topics related to cetaceans, the ocean, and endangered animals, even some terrestrial animals. And we'll be doing a lot of the same things this season here too. Obviously, different topics, but similar themes, cetaceans, oceans, endangered animals. I hope you guys enjoy this first episode. If you guys have any requests, you'd like to be on the podcast, please feel free to reach out via Instagram or send me an email at erica at breachingextinction.com. Really excited for this next season, and I hope you guys enjoy our first episode here. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week, I'm here with Scott Veers. How are you doing today, Scott?
2: I'm good. COVID-free and um, uncongested.
1: Amazing. That's what we love to hear. COVID is no fun. Um, so tell us about yourself, Scott. Who are you? What do you do? And how did you get interested in whales?
2: Yeah, good question. I, I am an oceanographer trained at the University of Washington and an environmental scientist. Um, as an undergraduate, I was really interested in environmental problems and In grad school, I got pulled down deep into the ocean to study hydrothermal vents at deep sea volcanoes. And I came out really wanting to get back to the parts of the ocean where humans are having an impact. You know, basic science questions are awesome in the ocean and figuring out like the origin of life at deep sea volcanoes was really exciting. But um, the prominent problem in the marine realm for me, coming out of grad school in the early 2000s was uh, Southern Resident Killer Whales, a regional icon around Seattle where I live still. Um, And so the killer whales listening for them as an oceanographer turned me into a marine biologist. Um, They're fascinating and they're fun to listen to and they are definitely imperiled mostly because of human interactions.
1: Absolutely. So have you always loved ocean life or was this like something that you came to love as you were older?
2: Actually, I grew up in Colorado where there haven't been oceans for many millions of years. So um, I didn't, you know, I loved animals as a kid. I had lots of pets, um, a bevy of beasts is something my mother called my room at one point. (laughs) Um, But as a 15 year old, I I took a, a Naui scuba class and I did my open water diving in Mexico, which was, I had trained in a pool in Connecticut. So it was, it was really eye opening to suddenly see the oceans and experience them, them in three dimensions. So that's when the, you know, fascination with the oceans for me started as, as a teenager. Um, and it, it percolated, uh, on, you know, I went to school in California and took a class at Monterey Bay at the Hopkins Marine Station in Monterey Bay. So um, that sort of drove me towards oceanography.
1: For sure. So what is your current title and what organization are you currently affiliated with?
2: Yeah, so I'm the president of a small family business in Seattle called Beam Reach. And we partner with academia and get government grants. And um, for a long time, I've helped coordinate the Orca Sound Hydrophone Network, which uses underwater microphones to listen for Southern residents and other whales near Seattle.
1: Okay, awesome. So tell us a little bit about Orca Sound and this hydrophone project.
2: Yeah, so it started as um, a network, a physical network of these underwater microphones and folks have been listening to killer whales for a long time, like since the 70s up here in Seattle. And um, so there used to be one hydrophone at Lime Kiln State Park maintained by the Whale Museum and uh, you know a long chain of researchers there. Um, we helped them expand to five locations around Washington State in the sort of mid 2000s using NOAA, NOAA grant. And so we were trying to listen for killer whales throughout their critical habitat at the time, um, in part to help NOAA researchers get out on the water and understand what they were eating and how to conserve them. So it's about the time that they were listed as endangered. And on a foggy day or at night, we would hear killer whales that when the sighting networks around Puget Sound couldn't see them. And that helped facilitate research that led us to understand, wow, these animals really love salmon. They really are maniacally focused on Chinook salmon. Most of the, most of the time they're in Washington state. Um, and lots of other information about their endocrinology from fecal samples and, um, you know, the risks that they face as an endangered species.
1: Okay. Very cool. So now there's this hydrophone network for people to listen to whales. Why is it helpful for us to listen to whales? What can we learn from hearing about their vocalizations?
2: Yeah. So that's, that's the question we could probably talk about for a long time. Um, And it gets back to my differentiation between basic biology and the questions we ask in that realm and applied problems in environmental science. And, you know, I think initially Beamreach was a marine science school and we tried to get students from the University of Washington or through the University of Washington as advanced undergrads or, or recent graduates to study both of those types of questions, basic and applied. Um, so you can use the hydrophones for both. And but you know, at the beginning of the hydrophone network, we really were funded to facilitate research and driven as you know, as a scientist myself, my father Valveers, who's part of the family business, if you will, is also a scientist. And so we are excited about basic science questions. And um, I can tell you that of the 50 or so undergrads that we taught over the years between 2005 and 2012, when we stopped um, teaching undergrads, almost all of them arrived with the same burning question, which is what are they saying? You know, They make all these amazing sounds, like why are they so vocal? And, And can we associate any of these sounds that they're making with their behaviors that we see at the surface? Um, so that's a long way of saying we're all driven. I think we all have a curiosity about the sounds that animals make and, um, I'm still really interested in those questions. And, but, but honestly, in the last five years, almost everything that I've been doing with orca sound has been, um, really aimed at the applied questions that you can answer if you use the hydrophones to listen for them the solutions that you can, can accomplish. If you uh, have Microsoft people, I'm wearing a Microsoft shirt today from um, volunteers at Microsoft and, and from around Seattle has, have helped us build software to help listen for killer whales. And, and that's largely driven by these applied problems. Like if you know where the, where the killer whales are making sounds at any given time, like what could you do dynamically to help them, like what mitigation of impacts could you could you do if you knew where they were? And so the door is opening to lots of lots of possible methods for dynamically managing their recovery. Um, but I don't want to forget that we should also talk about like the basic questions. So I guess in a nutshell, um, I think. People can listen for killer whales with lots of different motivations. Mm -hmm. Um, One, the first one for us was, you know, how are they using sound? Like a sort of basic bioacoustic question. You know, how do they echolocate? How do they produce vocalizations? How do they whistle? What do all those sounds help them do in, in um, in their critical habitat? And and then how do they receive sound as well? Like, there's lots of great biology that you can talk about um, after having heard them and having recorded them. Um, Then there's the applied questions. And lots of our students were interested in like, okay, well, given that they have this communication system and it's important for some hypothetical reasons that we're trying to answer with those basic questions, like how is noise affecting them? Like do the, does the noise from a ship impact their ability to vocalize or whistle or echolocate or receive those sounds and accomplish the tasks that they're trying to do bioacoustically? Same question for boats or for pile driving. You have to ask lots of questions that are applied. Like how loud is a Washington state ferry underwater? Um, and how does its sound propagate through the water to where the killer whale is? So those are those are applied questions, and if you're listening to our hydrophones or analyzing our recordings, which are all open, open access and free, so you, you really could do this, you could try to answer questions like that. Um, but the last motivation, and I think this really connects with the work that you're doing, Erica, is um, fundamentally a reason to listen for killer whales through systems like OrcaSound, is to connect with nature mm-hmm. and to get engaged at night when you are probably not gonna be out looking at killer whales or on a foggy day or rainy day when you don't really feel like going to the bluff and connecting with nature visually. Um, I think it's very very powerful. And we've only begun to tap into what you could do for the species that you're hearing if you are taking that engagement and that connection to nature and turning it into some sort of conservation action.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, the connections to nature are very important. And, you know, citizen science is something that I think is very important, because, you know, a lot of people I've seen, especially with the southern resident issue, um, sometimes don't agree with certain, you know, conservation efforts. And it seems to me as though it's out of not understanding the science. So both I think, you know, you're filling that gap of both creating a connection and also engaging people in science. I think it makes it a lot easier for people to understand it when they can h- actively participate.
2: Well, I hope today we can play some sounds um, that they make because uh, I think it really is its is inspirational. Like I think most people, who, when they hear them, they start to, as community scientists, they start to get engaged because they are wonderfully chatty. Um, and that's the, that's the coolest thing about them is that They happen to vocalize at the frequencies where we hear well. So they're they're better than bats, for example. Um, They're actually vocalizing where we can hear them. And in most of their behavioral states, they are vocal. So unlike the big killer whales that focus on sneaking around and hunting seals and harbor porpoises um, and are very quiet, sort of stealth predators most of the time, the southern residents are making sounds that, their prey salmon don't hear very well at all. Um, There's almost no overlap between the the sounds that killer whales make and the the sounds that uh, the Chinook salmon senses. So it's a cool thing that they can be chatty and they don't have any ecological consequences of that. Um, So it means that when we're listening for them, if they go by, we're likely to hear them rather than having them swim by without saying anything. So that's a good thing about bioacoustics of Southern residents. The unfortunate thing about bioacoustics, especially when you talk about the applied problems is that it's complicated. Mm
0: -hmm. It's
2: it's a wonderful, but complicated combination of oceanography and physics, biology and physics within biology. Um, So I think it takes some time for people to understand like there's actually a bunch of noise and sound happening underwater. It's not the silent sea that Jacques Cousteau imagined when he was scuba diving around. Really? Uh, you know, sound is is the ultimate modality, a sensory modality in the oceans. And, and light is almost worthless.
0: Really?
2: So, but it takes what a while for us visual creatures really? to learn that um, it's so, sound is so important underwater. And um, it's hard to explain that a ship that appears to be silent when you're watching it go by a beach is actually the prominent source, the, most, the dominant source of, of noise in the killer whales habitat.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it definitely can kind of give us a better understanding of their world too, because it seems they're much more acoustically inclined, inclined than we are. So, you know, it gives us a glimpse that we wouldn't have otherwise being able to hear everything that's going on. Um, you mentioned you have some sounds. Do you care to play those sounds?
2: Yeah, let's let's give it a shot. Um, If this doesn't work, you can always go to live.orcasound.net and play these recordings um, yourself. Um, Also at orcasound.net slash learn, we have a bunch of of tools that maybe we can take the time to explore a bit today. But um, the main thing we've been trying to build in the last five years is open source software that makes it really easy to listen through a web application. So on your phone or your desktop or your iPad. The idea is to just have the live audio come from the ocean and make it into your, your uh, headphones. Um, so on the landing page for that web app, there's three um, of our greatest hits, if you will. So calls, clicks, and whistles. I'll play you three examples here. First is is a bunch of calls made by all three pods of the sudden resonant killer whales, J, K and L, when they were together. So those those were vocalizations, pulsed calls made by Southern Resident Killer Whales. Um, If you practice using the tools in our um, learning page, you can start to hear some of them as unique or stereotyped calls. Mm -hmm. So there were some S1s and some excitement calls, which we call an S10 in there. Mm -hmm. Little honky S4 calls, which are common for JPOD. Yeah. So over time, you can kind of learn to listen more carefully uh, to the killer whale calls, and they can you can use them to infer a lot about who you're hearing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We're not at the point yet where we can, uh, I don't know anybody who can listen to the sounds and say, oh, voice ID, that is, you know, a particular southern resident killer whale. But we can infer the um, type of killer whale, like the pod, mm-hmm. um, at least, and... and- and we're getting—we're sort of on the cusp of the challenge of getting to lines. Mm-hmm. And oh, the other thing you can do is get the ecotype. So you can get pretty easily. Humans can learn to differentiate between southern resident killer whales versus bigs killer whales, the mammal eaters versus northern killer northern resident killer whales. And machines aren't quite there, but that's that's sort of the next challenge for artificial intelligence. Right now it's, is it an orca or not? Mm. <laughs> so then they also make these fantastic echolocation clicks, where, which are incredibly loud at the source, um, yeah. and travel through the water, bounce off the density um, change, which is the uh, inside the Chinook. There's a swim bladder, a little pocket of air so this killer whale click bounces off of that swim bladder and then some of it reflects back towards the killer whale and is received through their hearing system
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, and so this is what the clicks are really important for their foraging and this is what they sound like. (laughs) So that's just 10 seconds example, there's different types of clicks and um, but that's roughly what they sound like, little little uh, snaps. And then um, killer is also whistle. <laughs> so that's sort of all of those sounds plus a few other things they can do by slapping Parts of their body against the water surface. They can make percussive sounds. Um, those are the, that's sort of the repertoire of southern resident killer whales.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Very cool. So they they're very dynamic, obviously.
2: Yeah. I, I'm. I mean, does was it fun for you to listen to those?
1: Yeah. No. I think it's definitely fun. I mean, it's fun to hear the different sounds that they make, and I know there's a lot of people that have gotten really hooked on like you know, volunteering at Orca Lab or listening to different hydrophones and trying to, you know, see the individual whales and the matriarchs, the different ecotypes, like you said. Um, I mean, I definitely find acoustics very fascinating. Just, you know, the way that I see it, it's like it's our eyes are our visuals, you know, senses are our predominant way of moving through the world. And for them, it's auditory. So it's really fascinating to be able to kind of how listen not and experience what they're going through underneath the ocean?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Orca Lab because you know we were certainly inspired by them. I continue to be inspired by Paul and Elena and everybody who's worked with them. Um, and their online community is it's also really fun to watch the interaction between you know the folks who are physically near the hydrophones and their global listening community.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: I think that that is a good example of the engagement I was talking about that I hope that our web app will um, increasingly facilitate. It's there's often a back and forth between, you know, what the experts are hearing and what the um, community scientists are hearing. And and there's a lot of learning that can happen back and forth when that exchange is active.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, it just kind of cultivates that connection between science and people, and then just also the, I think, natural curiosity that humans have for the environment. So you, I know you guys are doing a citizen science project, which is the main thing that you guys wanted to talk about on here. Can you tell us a little bit about this new project?
2: Sure. Um, first, I want to just say that, like, Ork Lab recently did some inspiring things that I th- hope that we can and replicate down here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, they work, sometimes work with researchers to use their hydrophones or even arrays of hydrophones in particular locations to not just listen like with one ear, but to listen and locate, um, mm-hmm. estimate where the sound is coming from. So they did a nice study um, that has turned into a publication, but you can also learn about it through, the, through their website. Um, and we've done things like this, where you, you have this multiple hydrophones, an array of hydrophones, and you can localize where the sounds come from. Um, but the folks at Oracle Lab know the Northern Resonance so well that it was relatively easy for them to, um, with their spotting scopes and cameras, you know, v- keep track of visually how the killer whales are moving past their hydrophone. At the same time, the array of hydrophones was um, receiving the sounds. And then you can do some post-processing to figure out the bearing like of the source for, for any particular sound that comes in. So I thought that was really cool that in the last few years they've, um, like like folks further north, there's something called the BC Hydrophone Network, which, mm-hmm. which Oracle Lab is now part of. The folks um, at Cetacea Lab further north, up, up at the north end of British Columbia have done even more fantastic localization experiments. So I wanna to point to them as great examples of how, if you're well-funded, you've got high quality hydrophones that are calibrated, mm. you, can, you can answer much um, more interesting biological, basic biological questions than we've been able to answer down here, You know, post-NOAA funding, during the end of the Obama administration and through the Trump administration, we haven't had the funding mm. to do that type of like multiple hydrophones and calibrated hydrophones. So everything that I'm gonna tell you that we're trying to do with the web app is, is basically using a single hydrophone or maybe two, but not localizing. And, and so we're trying to think of like, what can you get a community scientist to do that engages them and that is actually useful for the whales um, and can be done very cost-effectively. Like with, if you only have funding for one hydrophone and you don't have a very good internet connection, like what can you do as a community scientist or as a community of scientists?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's, I just wanna contextualize that we would love to go where the well, well-funded Canadians and smart Canadians have gone, but currently we're trying to do like the simplest of things. So, so the Orcasound web app is, it's currently deployed at live.orcasound.net but it's gone through three, three versions so far, since we um, ran a, a, a crowdfunding project, a Kickstarter uh, mm-hmm. back in 2017. So the first version was basically just like, make it work and make it, um, make it work on all devices. So that means different operating systems, phones, tablets, PCs, laptops, Different end in different browsers: Safari and Chrome, and um, Explorer, and Firefox. So it actually is a pretty interesting tech technology. It ha- it was an interesting technological challenge. It's still challenging because it it tends to evolve as as you know more phones and operating systems and browsers come into the world. Mm-hmm. But I'm proud of like version one really solved some problems that were a pain in, in, um, in my life, uh, when I was helping coordinate OrcaSound, when we used to use MP3 streams and old windows PCs for generating the, uh, the live data. Mm -hmm. I got so many complaints in, you know, around 2010, you know, I just got my new phone and the I used to have this way of listening and I now I switched to this app and um or I, I'm on a PC and I can't I don't have iTunes anymore and uh there were it was just getting like exponentially difficult to manage. Mm-hmm. So it's been a huge relief to have one URL or web page where you go and it just works no matter what browser. Um we're still you know, working out a few kinks, but now in version, we're, we're about to launch version three and um, I'm pretty excited that we, we, about what we're starting to be able to build on top of that, that basic technology that just made the audio data streaming work, made it cost effective to scale. Um, the other big complaint that we used to get was we would pay like a dollar per listener per month, per location.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so on a limited budget, what we ended up doing was, like, limiting it to, like, 30 listeners. And Mm -hmm. so when social media started to make, like, the stuff go viral a little little bit, it was very easy to have, like, during a one- or two-hour live concert from Mm -hmm. the whales, it was pretty easy for those seats to fill up. Mm -hmm. So we got lots of complaints about, I can't listen, I usually can, and it just won't work. And that was because you know the stream was not scaling with the audience. So that's the other problem that we solved is we used Amazon um, storage in the cloud
0: mm-hmm.
2: to make it cost-effective to replicate the, you know, basically as many people as one can basically Load that web page and start pulling the audio data down from Amazon servers, and it doesn't fall behind. And um, there's no limit on the number of seats. So, like last fall during longer events where there's time for people to share that it's happening on social media, mm-hmm. we broke a record, which was like 200 listeners. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that this fall, with the new with the new version, um, maybe we'll get to 500. Or someday it could be a thousand, and the bigger that number gets, the more important it becomes to like think about the user experience from the perspective of the whales. Like, if you have a thousand people engaged and listening to a siniferous species, like what can you have? What what action can you facilitate in that moment to help that species? So that's that's the question we're we're we've been starting to answer, and I'm really excited to like solve that and, and iterate on the solution. Because um, I think we can talk more about that, but I want to connect listeners in Washington, which is the core of our audience, with the global community that, that like Orca Lab has tapped into, but also the other communities within the broader critical habitat of the Southern residents. Like I think to solve some of the biggest problems for the Southern residents, like the removal of the lower Snake River dams we will be much more powerful if we work as Californians and Oregonians and Washingtonians and BC citizens, and maybe even Alaskans, mm-hmm. all together in a concerted fashion. So um, I haven't talked about version two very much, but I should because that's that was very much aimed at the community scientists as an end user. Um, so basically what version two did is it took what was working in terms of the audio streaming technology
0: mm. and
2: added in interactivity on top of it. So now instead of just listening, there's a little button you can press that says, hey, I hear something.
1: That's really cool.
2: Yeah. So that's a very basic interaction. Um but it's like being able to type a comment at Orca Lab's community page and say, hey, I hear something. What is that? And have Paul or um one of their interns reply. Um so we're at the stage where you can you can type in hey i think i hear a boat or i think i hear a killer whale and but we haven't yet added the ability for another listener to respond to you so that's that's like open territory is how do you facilitate user interactions within sure. once once you've got the community scientists adding value but what 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 you can do what does happen is when you push that button a little row gets added to a database So we we know um, the time, the actual real time in the ocean, of the sound that you were listening to when you hit the button. So if you say, hey, I just heard an explosion. I think it sounded like an explosion. Like we can get a timestamp at that location for maybe some military training that was going on. Or if you hit the button because you say, I think I recognize that as mid-frequency sonar. in the past we'd, we'd have to ask you like did you happen to you know note what time you heard that because we'd love to you know ask the navy if they were doing testing or training that's mm-hmm. just that's just now um in the code mm-hmm.
1: that's so. pretty awesome I, that's cool too because you know with having more people have access to it they can do it during like all times of the day so if you just can't sleep at two in the morning <laughs> if somebody wants something to do Um, you maybe have people monitoring information that wouldn't be monitored otherwise.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's super valuable to listen um, at night, like the Mm -hmm. local night here in Seattle. So um, part of the reason we've been putting a bunch of effort into understanding our audiences and and spreading the word through podcasts like yours is that listeners in other time zones are super valuable. Mm-hmm. You have someone listening in Southeast Asia or in the UK or Eastern Europe or the Middle East. Those, those folks are quite valuable as human detectors because most of us who care about killer whales in this area are sleeping when they're mm-hmm. working and paying attention. Um, so I think that's a cool aspect of the orcasound community science community is that we become mm-hmm. much more valuable if we like diversify, diversify across um, time zones. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Absolutely. That's very important. So obviously, you know, you guys are still in the beginning stages and it sounds like you're trying to raise more awareness and get more people involved. Um, So you, you mentioned that you're looking for citizen scientists. How can this podcast be helpful in your goals and your missions?
2: Yeah. um, Well, to the extent that you Have listeners in other parts of the country, in the United States or internationally, like like I mentioned, you know, having listeners and and having community scientists listening for whales in those places are are super valuable to us. Um, But honestly, having having anybody listen is is important, especially as we try to organize conservation calls to action within the web app. so just like you could spread the word about a petition, like spreading the word about the web app, over time, I think we'll have a conservation benefit benefit for the southern residents. That's certainly our intent. Um, I sh- should mention that as a placeholder. That the other thing, the other interactivity that came with version two is there's a little blue banner across the top of the web mm. app that says "I'd like to be notified." So y- you can sign up to get email notifications. At the moment.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: when anything interesting is happening. So either when the AI detects something interesting or humans detect it or both, we send out a notice and via email. So um, that's something you can sign up for now. And then over time, that should give you more opportunities to actually listen to the Southern residents as opposed to listening for them. Absolutely. And... If you know, our, our, our public road roadmap definitely has other types of notifications coming, so push notifications within the web app, um, text notifications if you want, notifications within your workspace, like Slack or Teams are all on the drawing board. So part of, this ties into sort of part of our vision for the next five years is to think about how you would prioritize a certain Conservation action for a certain species in a certain location,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and then, and then amplify that action across the whole listening community.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it can There's an analogy like we have so many awesome sighting networks using Facebook, which is also a web app to organize themselves. It's by by far the best use of Facebook I've seen because it's it's real time. You can upload photos. You can do photo ID in real time. You can share locations on maps and sort of track where whales are going and organize yourself as a sighting community. So Facebook, but that's that's not what Facebook was designed to do. So it just tells me that web applications have a lot of conservation potential, but we haven't really tuned them to be effective. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Like when Orca network is Doing such a fantastic job of tracking a group of bigs killer whales as they move past Seattle,
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: it's it's a pretty finely oiled machine right now, and you get a unique location every half hour or so with so many people engaged and watching.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But what rarely happens is, you know, for Orca Network or a member of the community to say, "Hey, you know, today the most important thing we can all do for the Southern residents that we're." tracking um, and watching and observing from land is this. Mm -hmm. Everybody in that, you know, they have more than a hundred thousand followers. So like, how do we take that social network and use it to help the whales? This is, I think a big question that hasn't been fully answered yet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do notice just because, you know, social media is such a huge thing. I think everybody notices um, that, There's a lot of people who are interested in cetaceans and follow a lot of organizations or individuals who work with them, Um, but there does seem to be, I totally notice it all the time, like just because in the whale watching community, there's a lot of like, you know, whale influencers and it seems like we're, we're definitely missing something on a way that we could help the whales you know through these platforms because if you've got literally like hundreds of thousand people you know trying to to follow the animals there's bound to be at least a few of them in there that want to do something to help them
2: yeah so. and what happens when that number gets to a million or yeah 10 million like we have a lot of people on the planet um and how you know figuring out how you affect change as as an online community is it's exciting um i think we're just beginning to see it as an opportunity for, especially for species like the killer whales that are in the ocean. And um, honestly, you know, it's you can you can go and sign up for a whale watching tour, or you can be part of a sighting network, and you will probably get a chance to see them. But it, it's not easy, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's relatively rare to get that engagement with wild killer whales that um, that is could be facilitated quite easily through through the well their sensory modality of choice
1: sound yeah. absolutely yeah no it's hard to find a killer whale for one it's also like it just frankly expensive and not accessible to most people like if you're in a landlocked state and you don't you know have a lot of extra money to go out and do things um you're not going to get on a boat in the san juan islands and go look at a whale like yeah. frankly and i think most americans are in that situation one in four Americans are food insecure as a result of poverty. So creating, you know, ways where we're lessening those barriers between people and the environment is incredible.
2: Mm -hmm. So one of the things Beam Reach tries to do is, you know, cherry pick technologies that are sort of ripe for helping marine species that are at risk. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that Orca Lab has done that's totally inspirational to me is, is partner with explore.org mm-hmm. with, with visual technology, mm-hmm. engaging our brains optimally. Mm-hmm. So, uh, above in air cameras, like looking down on, on killer whale habitat, I
0: think mm-hmm.
2: they've done a good job and they've done a, They have this, this spectacular opportunity with the rubbing beaches in, mm-hmm. in Johnstone Strait to, to actually mm-hmm. get underwater footage. Of killer whales while they're making sounds. So mm-hmm. that's something that we've tried before and I'd like to try again, but mm-hmm. we don't we don't think we have rubbing beaches um, mm-hmm. in Washington state. So it's it's extremely rare to get underwater footage of killer whales.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But I do think that eventually we'll have, you know, camera systems at each hydrophone location to contextualize visually what's going on.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I mean, Orca Lab has proven that there's a lot of engagement that ha- happens when you have a camera, even if there's no underwater sound.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so yeah, eagle cams or, you know, I think that that's maybe the ultimate is a combination of oceanographic contexts, you know, temperatures and salinities and the currents doing this, the sound and also some, some visual context. So I think that's coming,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but it's just gonna be um, added engagement on top of what I think the sound can do pretty easily already.
1: Absolutely. Um, so where can people go find more information about this and get involved?
2: Yeah, so orcasound.net is, is our website. And um, I wouldn't mind playing you a few other sounds from there. Yeah,
1: go for it. The, the,
2: there's a learning page there that has a um, couple decades of products. Okay. There's more, there's more coming, but I can give you a quick tour of my favorite ones if you want.
1: Absolutely.
2: So we had a collaboration um, with La- the Langley Whale Center up on Woodby Island, um, mm-hmm. run by the same folks who run the Orca Sound, uh, the Orca Network sighting uh, network. Yeah. And they, Susan Berta, there found an old antique telephone booth and wanted, and Howie, her uh, co-founder of Orca Network, wanted to turn it into like a listening station. So you could kind of go in the phone booth and listen to whales. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we built a, uh, with a wonderful artist named Sarah, uh, you get to see a panorama of typical uh, seascape here in Mm -hmm. the Salish Sea. And then you can kind of uh, touch the screen and hear the sounds of different things. So can I walk through, through a couple of those recordings
1: Awesome.
2: So first is like Southern residents we've heard, but how about um, mammal eating killer whales? So each of these has like a little voice intro done by um, the son and or granddaughter of the woman who who this uh, Pat Price listening station was built to honor. Um, So here's what the recording sounds like in the little phone booth.
1: Biggs killer whales are usually silent predators,
0: but after capturing a marine mammal, these orcas often make lots of sounds like these.
2: but it is a good example of echolocation clicks and whistles and vocalizations from from, uh, Biggs killer whales. Um, Mm -hmm. A really cool thing about Orcasan is that it's not just about orcas anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Increasingly, we've been seeing and hearing what we call the humpback comeback, the recovery, the local recovery of humpbacks in uh, the inland waters of Washington and BC, where they were extirpated because of whaling back in the 19th and 20th centuries Mm
0: -hmm.
2: so you want to hear some harrow Strait humpbacks from washington absolutely okay humpback whales are famous for the long songs they make but so far in the salish sea we have only heard them making shorter sounds like these That's a good example of um, how the soundscape keeps evolving.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: we haven't talked a lot about the AI side of things, but that's that's one of the challenges is that you can teach a machine to recognize killer whales during one season and then have it get confused by something like humpbacks the next season.
0: That's so funny. the problems
2: are they keep evolving. Um, but yeah, you can kind of work your way through that and hear um, sounds that we anticipate hearing but we haven't mm-hmm. yet yeah part of the excitement of listening live is that you might be the first person to hear gray whales or minky whales which we know swim by our hydrophones but we've we haven't heard yet mm-hmm. we know they make sounds in the breeding lagoons of Mexico or on the outer outer coast of Vancouver island um, so we, we put those sounds in to that learning tool just to help your brain start to recognize what we think you might hear someday but we haven't heard yet
1: Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, Yeah, I'm sure you get some pretty funny little suggestions from your AI in trying to figure all that out. But that sounds like it's so fun and so interesting to be on the cusp of such new technology that you have all these little kinks to figure out.
2: Yeah, it definitely um, was not what I thought I would be doing. And I came out of grad school. Um, But it is really great for the brain. It's, it's fun to learn about New computer programming and new like algorithmic approaches to signal detection, but it's also really fun to meet user researchers who design software with, you know, as scientists who study the humans using it. So it's introduced me um, to things like hackathons and to volunteerism and open source software development, which I knew nothing about, definitely didn't get any training about in grad school.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I have no idea what half of the things that you just said were, like a hackathon. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I
2: didn't know either. But you can, as a nonprofit, you can sign up to be part of a hackathon in Seattle. And pre-COVID, this would be an in-person event. But post-COVID, it's been, or during COVID, it's been mostly virtual um, and equally effective. It's basically employees from places like Microsoft and Facebook and Google and Amazon here in Seattle will they, they, they might not find a lot of meaning in their job. They might really like killer whales, but not get to study them or interact with them much. So they often will come and devote uh, as volunteers a Saturday, a full Saturday, or sometimes multiple days working on a project for nonprofits. And so OrcaSounds benefited hugely from the philanthropy of Microsoft and all the volunteers who mm-hmm. come and listen to the problem that you're trying to solve today and they'll spend six hours, like 10 people, who normally would cost you like $10,000, will just solve the problem for you. It's, it's, It's sort of magical.
1: Yeah, that is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's great to see the community come together. You know, I always ask people too in the podcast what we can learn from the whales. And that kind of reminds me of the whales, of the whales coming together and having community. But what do you think that we can learn from the whales?
2: That's a great question. Um, so, the whales that I've been trying to help the most are the southern residents, and mm-hmm. they are a matriarchal society. Mm-hmm. So, I like the fact that you know a majority of your listeners are female or identify as female, and um, I think you know getting more women. People who identify as female into the decision-making realms for southern residents and scientific realms for southern residents probably would be a very good thing. <laughs> um, so I think so that's, that's one thing I think we could take from the southern resident killer whales is the idea that matriarchs, particularly wise older women, are really important for long-term Survival and sustainability. Um, thought about having uh, Beam Reach have a board of only you know wise people who identify as women here in Seattle. <laughs>
1: so that would be I, pretty cool.
2: Yeah, or or maybe wow. the other question I've been thinking about is like, how do you choose what action to try to get people to take on any given day, in any given part of critical habitat. Like what if we had a, well, we do have, there is a hydrophone in Monterey Bay. Like if we hear Southern residents this next winter down in California, like what, what would the Californian matriarchs call to action be? Like, what can we do in the San Joaquin or the Sacramento river valleys to help Chinook recover? And that's a different question than if kilos were heard on the, the, Ocean observing initiatives, hydrophones that we have funded as US taxpayers off the coast of Oregon. Like, if we hear them off of Newport, like mm-hmm. in, the, in the middle of, let's say, next December, what's a call to action that's sort of geographically specific to Oregon and timely that we could all take there? And mm-hmm. so, one idea for like how to choose those conservation call to actions is like make them regional and timely.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But I think we can also ask other questions like how, you know, who should, who should specify what that action is? Like,
0: mm-hmm.
2: I think it'd be natural for, I and mean, we have different nonprofits hosting different um, locations within Orca Sound, three at the moment and mm-hmm. um, two more coming.
0: Uh, yeah.
2: One I should mention is Sound Action has a, they do have a hydrophone and an underwater camera on Bashon Island now. You can, if you Google Orca Cam, you see Orca Labs underwater cameras, but you also see Sound Action's underwater cameras. So um, there's more coming. But uh, I like the I, I like the idea of the boards or leaders of each nonprofit choosing that conservation action.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But I also think you could form a you know a, a, a wise board of matriarchs for Orca Sound that that has thought out what those might be or. When a listening event is that happening they actually get together and meet in real time and say hey you know everybody should be signing the petition to remove the Southern res- the uh, the snake river dams today like that's what no matter where it happens that's the, the most important thing but we don't have the human in- infrastructure to make those decisions in real time yet but we definitely have the tools to organize those women
1: yeah absolutely i totally agree with you obviously as a woman i definitely have had these thoughts myself and i'm I haven't gotten that answer yet, as far as like, what can we learn from the whales? Like a lot of people go to like community and like, you know, kind of the obvious ones. Um, But I definitely do like that answer. And I think it is, you know, important to bring up just given that, you know, in a lot of spaces, women haven't been given a voice and, you know, not to say that men aren't, you know, capable of things, but it's important to have everybody's voice amplified, you know, and different perspectives, considering that women do take up 50% of the world. So Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. Um, Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners?
2: Well, it's sort of connected. Yes, one, um, it's sort of connected to our grand aspirations as uh, an open source community and a a community of folks maintaining a hydrophone network here Mm -hmm. in Washington. But I definitely think it connects to um, sort of the, the question you asked before you know, humans have failed to, to manage their relationship with salmon in terms of Western Western culture. We've, we've failed mm-hmm. in Northern Europe. We failed to manage cod and salmon, Atlantic salmon on the Eastern seaboard in Canada and the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think basically we're in the process of failing all along the Western US now, um, with the possible exception of Alaska. But combined with climate change, like, this is a grand challenge of our time. And it's grand in the sense that the salmon wonderfully migrate um, and move across multiple years through this whole geography of the Northeast Pacific. Mm -hmm. So the salmon connect California, Oregon, Washington, and BC and Alaska, and the killer whales move in a dance with them throughout Mm -hmm. Each year and throughout that geography, so I think we should be trying new things, mm-hmm. new human um, societal structures. Mm-hmm. So I, I th- I'm pretty serious when I say like what it, we have been doing as mostly white old men is has not worked for the ecosystems. So looking to indigenous and native communities, I think is. Absolutely appropriate. Um, But also, like thinking of novel ways we could use social networks and online tools to organize, like wise old women, also should be on the drawing
0: board.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, you know, I think a lot of people do agree that the way that the systems have gone over the last several hundred years have not worked for the environment and honestly for people in a lot of ways. And we do have a lot of gaps to fill as far as, as bringing people together. I think that, you know, social media and the internet is one of those double-edged swords where, you know, it can, you know, make people a little bit more isolated and less connected, or we can use it as a tool to better connect and have those, you know, in person, or if we can't because of Zoom or, you know, time zones or things meet via Zoom, et cetera, you know, and, and form those legitimate connections with other people to actually make a change.
2: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm thankful I, COVID didn't kill me, but I'm also thankful that COVID gave us a massive technological push towards being able to have those sorts of real-time meetings in ways that yeah, weren't familiar to everybody five years yeah,
1: ago. Absolutely, there's always a silver lining, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. There were, as awful as COVID was, there were a lot of positive things that came out of it as well. And that's definitely one of them.
2: I love that you're using the past tense there, Erica.
1: Okay. Yes yeah it was. <laughs> was I mean it I, I mean it's still like a thing but it's not as much of a thing you know you know yeah yes amazing well thank you so much for coming on the podcast I definitely appreciate it
2: you bet thanks for the opportunity to to talk with you and use sound uh, to change the world
1: yes absolutely all righty
0: guys you enjoy the rest of your week and tune in next week for another episode